right? Like my my writing life is being surrounded by 15 half-empty coffee cups, which I keep dipping my paintbrush into accidentally. All right. I'm Brendan O'Meara, and this is CNF Creative Nonfiction Podcast, where I talk to badass people about the art and craft of telling true stories, chart their journeys, and unpack their habits so you can get a little bit better at your own work. Today's guest is Rachel Dougherty. But first, a word from our sponsors. Hmm. Creative Nonfiction Podcast, greatest podcast in the world, is sponsored by Goucher College's Master of Fine Arts and Nonfiction. Goucher MFA is a two-year low-residency program. Online classes let you learn from anywhere, while on-campus residencies allow you to hone your craft with accomplished mentors, who have Pulitzer Prizes and best-selling books to their names. The program boasts a nationwide network of students, faculty, and alumni, which has published 140 books and counting. You'll get opportunities to meet literary agents and learn the ins and outs of the publishing journey. Visit goucher.edu slash nonfiction to start your journey now. Take your writing to the next level. Go from hopeful to published in Goucher's MFA in nonfiction. CNF is also brought to you by Baypath University. Discover your story. Baypath University's fully online MFA in creative nonfiction writing has this to say from a recent graduate. Christine Brooks recalls her experience with Baypath MFA faculty as being filled with positive reinforcement and a commitment. They have a true passion and love for their work. It shines through with every comment, every edit, and every reading assignment. The instructors are available to answer questions, big and small, and it is obvious that their years of experience as writers and teachers have made a faculty that I doubt can be beat anywhere. Don't just take her word for it. Apply now at baypath.edu slash MFA. Classes begin January 21st. So, playing around with a little style these days. But if it ain't broke, don't riff it. I'm telling you, I'm going to start using the word riff like Smurfs use the word Smurf. Anyway, like I said, Rachel Dougherty is here. She is an author and illustrator of children's narrative nonfiction books. How cool is that? She's the author and illustrator of The Secret Engineer, How Emily Roebling Built the Brooklyn Bridge, among other books. She works in acrylic paint, ink, and pencil smudges, using humor and color to inspire curious young minds. Rachel is passionate about U.S. history, scruffy little dogs, and board games. Hmm, yes. Oh, hey, by the way, have you subscribed to the podcast, CNF, the greatest podcast in the world? Be sure to do that. That way you get this pumped right into your feed. We can subvert the algorithm, man. Rage against the algorithm. It's like Google Reader before they realized, hey, wait a minute, Google Reader means people aren't Googling shit. So subscribe wherever you get your pods. I hope I've made something worth sharing. If you think so, link up the show across your platforms and keep the conversation going on Twitter and Instagram at CNFPod. That's where we can have our quote-unquote reading group, if you will. Okay. I also have a monthly newsletter. If you head over to brendanomero.com, hey, hey, once a month, no spam, can't beat it. That's where you also get the show notes, the award-winning show notes. I gave myself the award. It's hanging up in the office. One last shout out 
River Teeth for the promotional support. They forgot to post last week's episode on their Facebook page, so I hope that's an isolated oversight. Mm-hmm. In any case, they are a journal of nonfiction narrative, so go and get it. Submit your work, submit to the book prize, give them money, get their quarterly thing. In any case, Rachel gave a great flash session at Hippocamp this year about children's narrative nonfiction books. And that's a subject I'm really interested in, and I was really hooked by her presentation. I just thought she was really charming and smart and funny, and I really love her work. She crushed it. Crushed it. So I had to have her on the show to talk about what it is she does. And what's great, too, is you'll find out in the show, she's got a full-time day job, and she's making a great go of it as an artist She manages to thread it around the thing that keeps the lights on. So I think a lot of you are going to dig this conversation I had with Rachel Doherty. You ready? Let's do this. Ooh. I'm prone to, and maybe you do this as well, but I tend to drag my feet on drafts. like I'll finish them and then instead of just sending them right away, I like mm, make more work for myself by like, I, I'm really used to critiquing, you know, my work and like I step away from it and say, well, this isn't good enough to show. Um, and instead of just knowing that it's good and sending it, I feel like I pick over it. And then, I mean, in the case that I today or this week, I was asked to do like a set of very rough thumbnails and I was like, all right. And I did those. And then I was like, this isn't going to, this isn't going to show enough information. So then I put the art notes on top of the thumbnails and then I was like, still not good enough. So then I started doing like a digital, you know, digital color, like color mock-ups to give an idea of what the color will look like. And then my agent emailed me and was like, it's been so long. Why have you not sent this draft? So it's like, <laughs> oh, that's, I'm making more work for myself is why she was like, just send it. Nice. It- now, have you always been a bit of a perfectionist? Um, I guess. I don't really think of myself as a perfectionist, but maybe that's just like, uh, I'm just being kind. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think the children's book market is so tough. Um, and, you know, every time there's so many people, every time I go to a conference, there's so many people that I meet who say like, I just want to write a children's book. And there's so many books, and there's so many authors and illustrators who are so talented that I feel like there's no room to be less than your best when it comes to picture books. So I feel like sometimes I, I don't, I don't tend to be a perfectionist about like my personal work, like whatever I'm trying to just put on social media or like paint on a Saturday. Like if I get a splotch of paint, I'm not going to throw it away. But, like, something I'm trying to send to my editor, like, I don't want to waste her time with something that's not my best. Do you think people in in children's books, illustration books, and all, and, and certainly the, the wonderful work you're doing, doing, like, narrative nonfiction, children's illustration books, that people discount the amount of work that goes into it because it, it's more easily digestible for a younger brain? I don't know. I mean, I guess I don't usually compare myself to different genres, but, you know, like if if you look at my book uh, about the Brooklyn Bridge and sit it right next to David McCullough's book about the Brooklyn Bridge, um, I think it would be if you asked any passersby on the street whose book took more work, 
it would be incontrovertible that David McCullough did more work. It's just a very different way of working. Um, I do think that people who write, you know, nonfiction books for adults don't think about if you ask them like, okay, could you tell this story to a seven year old? I don't think a lot of them would think it's hard until they tried to do it. Because it's just, you know, words that you would use when you're talking to other adults or, or phrases or even context that, that kids don't have. Like you can't say, well, consider this bridge was built before electricity or like before the light bulb was invented or before there was antibiotics. Like you could say all those things to an adult and they would have an impact. But if you said those things to kids, like they would kind of be like, I don't know, every it's a hundred it's and years ago 150 years ago that doesn't even mean anything when you're seven like when I was seven I had a next door neighbor who was 24 like uh well the kids were 24 and I remember asking the neighbor like how old are your kids why do I never see them and they said oh well they're away like one of them is at college and one of them is just an adult they're 24 and I was like 24 might as well be 80 like it didn't make any sense to me I was like you don't have kids (laughs) She was like, I have kids. And I was like, no, you don't have kids. It was like a very, I remember vividly that not computing. And I think that like that kind of thing people don't consider when you're writing for kids. And I guess um, maybe the point I'm making is because it looks kind of easily digestible and and simple on it or or very approachable that maybe everyone who thinks, you know, to your point of like people not want, not bringing their all to this, they think that maybe it's something they can just kind of. It's not a. It's easier to do than something that's quote unquote more serious. So they're not like throwing their all at it, and thus, you know, they're probably getting disappointed and jaded. But whereas you know that every bit is there's a ton of work it goes into this to distill it and make it digestible and make it enjoyable for for any reader, but especially a young reader. Sure. I also think what's tough about picture books particularly, like I, I don't think you have this struggle nearly as much if you write nonfiction for like the middle grade or even the YA level. But um picture books are an interesting media because half of the storytelling is done in art. So like you if your pictures say exactly what the text says in a picture book, you kind of failed. Um because half of the story like half of the storytelling should be done with the intersection of the art and the text. So I think a lot of writers get into picture books because they think it's going to be simple and then when they go to write things like I I feel like I see this all the time is that just they have way too many words. They say like, oh, I wrote a 3,000 word picture book and somebody says, no, you didn't. You wrote a middle grade that you want (laughs) that should be longer or a picture book with way too many words. Like it's a very interesting medium. So I think that's something that a lot of writers don't consider when they think about getting into picture books. Mm. And yeah, I certainly want to unpack that a bit a bit more just as as a genre and how how you got into it and how you navigate it um but as we you know we'll we'll get to that of course and uh, I'd love to maybe back up a little bit and um maybe just ask you you know where you grew up where you came from and kind of what kind of kid were you uh you know growing up wherever you wherever you grew up sure um I'm from right outside of Philadelphia uh I want to say one of the closer ring suburbs but a suburb nonetheless um 
I was a really um, curious kid, and I think that it, when you meet writers and, and illustrators of picture books, they tend to create work for the kid that they were. I was one of those kids who um, wanted to know how everything worked. I would want, wander around being like, you know, why... Like, why can't penguins fly? And why why is the U.S. mint here? And what do they make there? And, like, how do bridges stay up? And how are volcanoes working? Why aren't there volcanoes here? These kinds of questions. And, like, I was lucky enough to have parents who took the time to answer some of those questions or at least point me in the direction of how to answer them in a time before Google, which was probably exasperating for them. But, um... I think that sounds like the great title of a children's book in the time, in the before, time Google. before Google. I feel like now it must be so easy. You just like walk around with a computer in your pocket. And if your kid is being, you know, playing the endless stream of why games, you can just Google it every time. But, you know, I feel like let's find out was usually the response. <laughs> so that was yeah. a lot of time spent in libraries as a kid. Nice. And what did your parents do? My mom was and still is in marketing and my dad he was one of those guys who had many many careers <laughs> he was a knit, like I think a history teacher at heart he um taught American history for as his like first job out of college and then he went on to work in radio and then he went back to teaching but he taught broadcast marketing but I think he always you know thought of himself as a teacher so that's probably I think it had a big effect on me and so what role did your, your parents play in sort of forging the, the kind of person and maybe giving you that kind of permission to chase your own curiosity and, and taste as, as a kid? I will say my parents allowed me to be hugely independent as a kid in a way that I don't think a lot of kids are maybe today. And I think maybe <laughs> parents would get in trouble with, with um, their neighbors or possibly even the law. Uh, for like letting <laughs> now for letting their kids sort of run wild the way that I did my sister much less so she I feel like as a kid was more close to home and less absent but I was very much like get on my bicycle and ride away for hours and that's probably the thing I was punished for most was disappearing um, but I did get away with it for a lot of instances and I spent a lot of time sort of exploring whether it was going to the like going to the library by myself as a child, which I don't know that you're allowed to do now, or like just, you know, climbing trees or running around in the forest or like being wherever. And I even like thinking about it now, like if I had a kid and they were just AWOL for hours, I would be so worried. <laughs> so I totally understand right. why that's like not a thing anymore. But I do think it breeds a sense of imagination in kids that um, I wonder, you know, how parents today are making up for that lack of freedom. So how did you start to channel your imagination as a, as a kid? When did you start picking up pencils and markers and stuff and really diving into illustrating and drawing and manifesting all those, all that imagination that you had in curiosity? Well, I think it's funny because, you know, I'm sure you can attest to this, all children draw. I mean, if you're under the age of eight, drawing is part of your life, I feel, or coloring or, you know, making up stories. Kids love to do that. And then I feel like once they get into high school, they kind of forget that that was fun. 
you know, whatever else happens, like it's all about soccer or it's all about the play or it's all about whatever. Um, but I think a lot of yeah, kids, the SAT, right. The SATs, <laughs> extracurriculars, whatever. But I think kids lose art or they lose track of writing or telling stories. Um, I don't think I was very, I wasn't very into writing in high school, but I was into art. Um, I really enjoyed my high school art teacher and the people in my high school art class and it was the thing I liked most at school so then I went to art school thinking like I'm not quite sure what I want to do with this but like I know that these are my people and that's what I'm going to do so I went to art school and like pretty much the second I was there I was like oh my people are the illustration majors but I didn't think I was going to write Um, I definitely thought I wanted to illustrate children's books I knew that that was probably the most interesting form of illustration to me. There are many. I mean, there's people who do comics. There's people who, you know, do advertising illustration or editorial illustration, like people who just do products or the New York Times book review, that whole kind of thing. But there's a sort of humor and strangeness to like the way that I like to work and the things I like to draw that I feel like fits in pretty much only with a traditional illustration sort of circle. So I was very drawn to that from an early early age and but then the more I did it you know I had a couple books under my belt and I was like I'm kind of sick of waiting for what I want to draw to come to me like I I want to draw you know like I had done a book about the Oregon Trail and I had done a book about the Titanic and I was like these are really fun and I want to keep and then I got another project that was all about you know travel like sort of traveling around Pennsylvania and that was fun too, but I was like, I want to do more history work and I'm not getting, I'm not getting it. So I thought I would try and write a book. Um, and I did. <laughs> so it took some time, but it was definitely, um, and an immersive experience. I would say probably the first 40 drafts of that project looked and sounded like not a book at all, just a bunch of random sentences strung together. But I think you know, I was lucky enough to join a critique group in in my area that I met with every month, and it was absolutely invaluable to making making me a writer. Where did that courage come from for you to take that leap on your own to seek the work, um, basically seek the work that you were craving, deeply craving? Um, I don't know. I guess I didn't think of it as being courageous. I would say impatience. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. Mostly, I've never been like a very prolific writer and illustrator. I think, you know, you'll probably talk to people on your podcast who can't, they can't go a day without writing or they can't, you know, the projects are just coming at them all the time. But I've just, I've never, I've never been that way. I tend to work on one project at a time. And I, I always have a day job because I would starve to death if I didn't. And I... Um, but I wasn't getting any work. I was at the time I was, um, I had done those three books and I was sending out a lot of postcards and mailers and, you know, I, I was picking up little gigs here and there, but nothing that felt like quite right. I think it's because I'm not able to make the work that I want to. So I decided to try and start it. And that's definitely been helpful to me. Hey, it's me, your CNF and buddy Brendan. Listen, 
We all need editing. We all need fresh eyes. You need someone who can objectively look at your work and coach it along. Whether that's developmental editing or even copy editing, hiring a great editor is one of the best investments you can make in your book and your writing. I'm doing the same thing. So if you want to take your book to the next level, consider working with me. I'd be thrilled and honored to help. Email brendan at brendanomero.com if you want to take that leap together. And now, back to the greatest podcast in the world. I'm so happy you um, you know you brought up that that you have a day job. Uh, that that's something um, you know I I of course have one as well, and I think a lot of people have um, sort of day job insecurity when they're trying to make creative work and they wish that their their art or their writing was their sole provider and uh, you know there's an inadequacy I think that some people feel and um, I know that because sometimes I feel that like I wish I was a better freelancer so I could support myself on that freelancing and sometimes there's day job shame and um, so I, I'm happy you brought that up and I so so what what is your what is your day job uh, right now Right now, I'm the communication specialist at a nonprofit that matches psychological researchers with schools to do school-based research. So it's all about um, sort of how to do research on character development um, in a seamless and, and fruitful way for both researchers and the schools that they do the research in. So it's centri- central to like kids' well-being and I get to write and edit a lot of things to that effect, but I wouldn't, and and I also design sometimes. Um, but yeah, it's definitely less colorful than if I were illustrating all day long. But you know, it pays bills, and I really like the people that I work with. So yeah, no, that's it's great that you know if you look at your website and the work you do. Um, you know, just the stuff that you that you, that you share on, on Instagram or Twitter, and then of course the the beautiful books that you've put together. You know, one would think that oh, this is this is what she does. This is her gig, and so it's very inspiring. I think for people to hear that you you're doing this kind of creative work that's nourishing, but also you you're able to do it and orchestrate it in a way that is threaded around uh, a day job that does in fact keep the lights on. So uh, so how do you do that? How do you structure your days and your weeks so that you are, you know, of course, committed to your day job, but also doing the creative work that you that you love to do? Um, I think it's and like certainly not to shame anyone who is a freelancer like they I think everyone has to do what's best for them. For me, I think being a full time freelancer would be very unhealthy because I worry a lot and I think I would worry to the detriment of my work um, about, you know, I think it would, ta- it would mean taking on projects that I didn't really care about to, to pay bills. And I don't, I never wanted my, my illustration work. I love very, very much. Um, it's like definitely the thing that is most meaningful to me and, and reading my books to kids and all of that. It's, it's a really special thing. Um, but I don't want to take projects just because, you know, I need to pay my rent. I, so for me, it's, it's tough sometimes because when, I, when you're on a deadline, um, like if, if I've gotten approval and the green light to go to finals on my books, you know, I have six months to do 
anywhere between 30 and 60 paintings. This is quite a lot because I, I work traditionally. I don't, and you know, nothing can be copy and pasted. It's, it's a, it's a physical painting on a piece of paper. It can be, it can mean working a regular eight hour day and then coming home and painting another eight hours and sleeping not very much for maybe five months at a time. That's luckily um, a situation that I could get myself into right now. I can't say that will always work, you know. Um, sometimes I foresee in the future things being more difficult. Like what if, like what if I had a family and couldn't take care of, you know, my work that way and then also kids and also my dog and also my life, that kind of thing. But for right now, that's the way I've been getting along with it. I've, I've gone through stages also, like while working on a project where I had a part-time job or I worked remotely. That was the way that I worked on them right, right then. At the moment, I have a full-time job. So I guess I can't say it will always be the way that it is in this very moment, but I have pulled off some work while having a full-time job. It is a miserable time. It's a bit like you have a, two full-time jobs for a few months, but mm, um, yeah. it's not the worst thing in the world. I feel like so far I've been able to come through it with like minimal scars. How do you ration your energy so that you can bring your best self to you know whatever project you, you feel deserves you know, the best Rachel? I guess compartmentalization. I think I just try to be, you know, if I'm at work, if I'm at my day job, I'm at work. I'm just trying really hard not to like, I don't like to, you know, sort of have one foot in illustration while I'm at work. Like I I don't, I try not to think about like, like, oh, I'm going to be painting tonight. Like, let's like brainstorm the composition of this piece while I'm also trying to do work because that will just result in a not a very focused day at work. And be probably not a great job at brainstorming. Like, you just can't. I'm not a great multitasker. <laughs> so, probably yeah. that. Um, and then when I'm at home doing illustration, I'm not thinking, you know, tomorrow at work I have this meeting and I have to do this. Like, that's just leads to bad work. So, I think I just, it's, it helps with a place, you know. Like, I prefer that I work in an office. And then when I'm at the office, it's office time. And then when I come home, I'm in my studio and it's studio time. So, that's helpful. Yeah, that's brilliant that to really be able to wall it off like mentally and physically, really quite literally, you know, you're able to create those boundaries and like in in my studio, I'm not thinking day job and likewise, you know, day job not thinking about, you know, the painting or the writing I'm going to be doing. So that's got to be yeah, that's got to be great. I know I'm not particularly good at that. I mean, you know, when I'm at the day job, oftentimes my brain is just firing off on basically this this is kind of my big project and so i'm like oh shoot i should be i I didn't put out enough you know marketing uh, enough tweets and all this and i'm thinking like oh shoot i gotta email i gotta try to book this person and and so yeah like the mind is frayed and i'm very scatterbrained at times so it's it's really tough to compartmentalize when you feel like you know things are just like rattling around the head Especially so i really admire that it's not particularly satisfying i've been in that position as well in the past where if you don't really like your day job it's very easy to daydream about your your moonlighting situation while you're at work right yeah exactly so it's uh yeah it, it's it, so i really admire admire that and it's really such, it's such a good strategy and uh, austin cleon in his latest book his great book keep going you know he 
he specifically says like you know you want to be able to set up your bliss station and uh, you know he kind of t- took that term from Joseph Campbell yeah. I think uh writing about that and uh what is your um it, it, as a way to compartmentalize of course like what is your bliss station look like mm. it's interesting because i'm definitely i don't feel like i'm particularly romantic about my work um i meet a lot of people who are like this is the best i just love writing and i feel like without it i like i would cease to go on that's i'm <laughs> for me it's still <laughs> it's still work like i mean i like my studio right. i like being in there I like being surrounded by work that i've made because it gives me a sense of accomplishment, but it's a bit like at the end of a run, you know, like I, some people feel bliss while they're running. I do not. I feel like this is misery. I hate exercising. Yuck. <laughs> but at the end of it, I feel like I have accomplished this. It feels good. But the actual process of writing and illustrating, like I, I, I admire people. I don't have this gene. I admire people who that's the bliss, like the people who love running. I, that's the bliss. I don't know. For me, it's like I would always rather be like, you know, at the park with my dog or like hanging out with my friends or like <laughs> seeing my wife. Like I would not prefer to be chained to my desk, but like that's where the work comes from. So sit at your chair. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, what kind of irritates me on 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 socials is like seeing, you know, the... And I hope this doesn't offend anyone who does this, but whatever. It's just like, you know, they have a desk looking out at this beautiful vista and, you know, this is the writing life or whatever. And I'm just like, like is it? It makes, me ga- <laughs> it makes me gag. I'm like, no, like I look at my wall that has foam on it. Like that's that's the writing life. Like being in a cave and being right like my writing late. my writing life is being surrounded by 15 half empty coffee cups which I keep dipping my paintbrush into accidentally. <laughs> yeah, and then some have mold in Yeah, it. you're it's, like, oh no. <laughs> that's a writing life. Surrounded by mold. <laughs> so when you're um you know, when your brain starts popping, you know, what where do you find ideas for stories that you think you're gonna wanna take the deep dive on? Hmm. I think for me it's always reading nonfiction for adults. <clears throat> Like I, I read a, I don't, I don't read a lot of fiction, which I feel like really sets me apart from most humans that I meet. Um, they're like, oh, what's the book that you're reading? And I'm always like, a history of smallpox. And they're like, what's wrong with you? Like, <laughs> I, just, I just, that's again, I feel like it's the what I like to read. But sometimes in a larger work, like when I when I decided I wanted to write this Brooklyn Bridge book, I was reading David McCullough's book, The Great Bridge, which is amazing. It's a fantastic work. I mean, it's easily my favorite of his books, and he's a fantastic writer. But, you know, it's it's dense, and there's a lot to learn there about engineering, about the Victorian era, about New York, you know, all of these things. But I feel like finding, you know, when you're reading a larger work and you you happen upon one little thing and you're like, wait, you're just going to gloss over that. I need more information. Um, and then if you do more information and you're like, well, this is still interesting. That's when I start writing things down. It, yeah. So what was it about, let's say the Brooklyn bridge? What, what thing that was, did McCullough maybe gloss over that made you want to maybe hook into? I mean, I think like to gloss over is a strong term for this in his book because he, he does pay her more attention than I feel like he ought to. Um, I mean, given the other books about the Brooklyn Bridge are so driven by like the story of the designer and then of his son who took over when he died. 
um, which is a kind of romantic story in itself. It's like, oh, like industry, like he followed in his father's footsteps, like all this kind of thing. Um, but McCullough, he's like, oh, and by the way, <laughs> sort of by the way, the last 12 years of the construction process were managed by Washington's wife. And you're like, that's a big chunk of time, like of a 14 year construction process. That's the bulk of it. I wanted more details on like what exactly she did. Like, did she just deliver the mail? Did she go down to the job site and tell anybody anything? Did she learn anything? Like, and I think even when you read it, he, he definitely gives her credit. And, and the more I read, like there are still some, like some credit, there is a plaque on the Brooklyn bridge thanking Emily Roebling. It's very small. You could miss it easily, but it's there. But nobody told me this story in in high school history, in college history. Nobody said, you know, by the way, this like great feat of American engineering uh, had a lady involved. Just nobody mentioned it. And I was kind of like, that's strange. And I think, you know, I, I just wanted not necessarily because I think a lot of these books are coming out now, these sort of like hidden herstory kind of things Mm -hmm. which i think is great i'm sure it's a huge marketing push for my book but i just think it's not necessarily about that for me it is i mean i it's it's very important to me that a woman was involved but i think what's more important to me is that you've all heard of the brooklyn bridge everyone you don't have to live in new york it's not a local story i'm from philadelphia but you might not have heard of this part of it which just feels like Wow, that's a whole other layer that I did not know. Yeah, and I love in your um, in your little presentation at uh, at Hippocamp that uh, you know, on one of your slides you you know you wrote that you know fall into a story or gather special collections of facts. So, what does that look like for you when you fall into a story? When you read something, and I just say, "Oh, I just want to know what it looked like." Like I want to know what that felt like. Like the the um. The book that I worked on about Calvin Coolidge's pets, which I know is like a bit of a silly story, but it was like my first one that I ever wrote. I I fell into it because I was like, it was, I was reading through a list of facts and I came upon this, like, did you know that Calvin Coolidge had a pygmy hippopotamus? And I was like, what? Like, how does that, why, why would he have that? Also, what does anyone know about Calvin Coolidge? Like if you asked a random passerby on the street, like, Hey, tell me one thing about Calvin Coolidge. I would bet you they would say, I don't know even why you would ask me that. The more I learned about Calvin Coolidge and his pets, I was like trying to imagine, like, what did Calvin Coolidge's house look like if he had, you know, 13 dogs? Like, what was a Sunday morning in Calvin Coolidge's house like with like, you know, he had a collection of ducks and and canaries and his dogs his dogs had his like favorite dogs had calling cards that they used to send to like other places to visit i'm like these are such strange like you get a picture of a person in your mind and you're like i think i always when i fall into a story it's like i imagine like what would it be like to have lunch with this person in this place at this time what would they be wearing what would they serve um, so that's kind of what, how I get into it. I think a lot of people who write, especially in children's books that are expository, and it's more like a collection of facts. 
uh, an author I know, Jen Swanson, she has written a lot. She wrote this very interesting book that I like quite a bit about um, the similarities between astronauts and, and deep sea aquanauts. Hmm. And, you know, I just think that's fascinating because I've never, you know, I think kids, kids like space so much, but they don't necessarily think about like how you could do that in, in the depth of the ocean. I just thought that was really fascinating. And I, I think what drew her to it was like this, these two lists of converging facts. And so you don't have to have a narrative to fall into it. And you're doing all this research and I'm always fascinated by how, uh, how writers organize notes so they can best access it when they need it. And so how do you go about organizing all this stuff and so that you can then best access it when you're ready to start drawing or start writing? I would say it's a combination of things. I like to use Google um, Docs and Sheets because they're searchable. Um, I've met people who go really old school and they have like notebooks full of information, but I don't think um, it's as quick for me. So I have um, like many, many, many lists of sort of lists of links in, in Google Docs and Sheets. And as well as with reference photos, there are like folders within folders within folders. Like I have a folder of reference photos and then inside, you know, for the, you know, secret engineer, I have like a folder that's just pictures of Washington and Emily and then folder, a folder of pictures of the bridge and then folders of pictures of Brooklyn. And then, you know, anything that comes up, like I had to paint a rooster in that book. So I was like, uh, I have 50 pictures of roosters, that kind of thing. <laughs> I have many Victorian interiors because that happens. Many Brooklyn streets, that kind of thing. Um, so like that's just reference photos. But like for the research, you know, I also had there's a lot of math equations in the book um, that all had to be accurate. Um, so I have a lot of, you know, civil engineers pocket guides circa 1900, like saved pages and that kind of thing and I usually organize it in just different folders that are searchable you know it, you've said that in terms of stories and biographies that your favorite ones are always about people modestly wandering through the world who have seemingly insurmountable challenges dropped in their laps and conquer them just the same um, so why do you feel like that why does that uh, hook you and draw you in Maybe it's because I don't have a lot of bravado of my own, but I think someone rising to a challenge that they didn't seek out always seems more impressive to me than someone who, like, you always knew would be great. Like, um, if you say, oh, it was Mozart was a child prodigy and he was always going to be wonderful, it kind of feels like you've blown, like, you've blown the story before you even get to it. Um, I think... Like, uh, I like to ask people when I meet them as a sort of personality insight, which is silly because most people don't have an answer. But I like to ask them, like, who is your favorite president? Just to see. And I think a lot of people have interesting reasons for why they pick their favorite. But I always I my favorite is Harry Truman for this exact reason. I don't I think he might be the only president who never wanted to be president. And I think that's really fascinating because, I mean, you have to be a megalomaniac to want to be president, right? Like, it's insane. It's an yeah. insane job. 
Um, you think you can run the world, literally. But I like that Harry Truman is just like this, he's just a haberdasher from Missouri. And then they're like, you're going to be, you're going to be president. And he's like, oh no. Like he definitely had an oh no moment, which I think is really special. And I think there is a lot of um, figures in history like that, like, like Emily Roebling, who were just, you know, like, oh, I think this is interesting. And I'm married to an engineer, but like when when the time called for me to rise to that challenge, I was there. It, I love the, the oh, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and uh, over the course of the process of uh, whether it's writing or illustrating, um, at, where in there do you feel most alive and most engaged in the process? When I start working on the final pieces, um, I like the sketch phase in a different way. It activates a different part of your brain because that's where you're making all the decisions, I think, like the big decisions. Um, but once those are approved, I think watching, for me, because I do most of my sketches in black and white in a traditional way, you know, they're just pencil and paper. I scan them in. Um, sometimes I'll move things around in Photoshop or make things smaller, bigger, but for the most part, it's an old school process. But when I'm go to put the color on is when I start seeing it look like a book. And I think that feels really like it feels special and it gives me a sense of momentum. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, and is there any one that, uh, that, that, that appeals to you more that, that might be, a that maybe informs the other a bit more. So you have like kind of like a, a, a flywheel sort of develops, like maybe the writing feeds the illustrating and, or vice versa. Oh yeah. I mean, I think the, the research process um, is a very much a flywheel. Um, I think when you are, when I'm researching for the, for a book, I'm never researching like just for the illustrations or just for the writing. Um, it's kind of for both in, in hand but I do feel like sometimes when I'm writing and I go to change something and I, I need to do more research to change it, I end up taking notes that go for illustration later because there's just things that, that are visual that I know I want to capture in the illustration. And then sometimes when I'm looking at reference photos for an illustration, like I'll say like, oh, I want to build, I want to draw this building. And in doing the research, I learn more that I say, oh, I want to change the phrasing of this sentence to reflect that. So I think when I'm actually doing the artwork, though, everything's already been approved by um, my editor, art director, the whole team at the publishing house. So I wouldn't say you're locked in, but it's it's more of a time of execution. And uh, we alluded to it earlier that it's a, a crowded, crowded space. So it's kind of you know, it's of course hard. Everything is crowded when you think about it. So it's a ma it's a matter of standing out with with style and having a point of view and really drilling down on what makes you you and sort of doubling down on that. So, what are some of the the challenges you faced in in a crowded market to you know carve out your own little space where you can make a a, a book like The Secret Engineer? Hmm, I think it's tough because. I don't always feel like I'm making something completely unique or special that like no one else could do. It really feels most of the time like I have an immense privilege to have lucked into this. Um, 
I, I, maybe it's just that I lack some confidence, but I, primarily I do feel like there are so many people out there who are amazing illustrators, like so talented and amazing writers and so talented. Um, and am I better than all of them to have gotten where I am? Certainly not. Um, so there is an element of being in the right place at the right time. But also I think there's a, when you're really passionate about a story and you are really like authentically driven by your angle on this story and, and what draws you to it, I think it gives your work a, a sense of genuine authenticity that people can pick up on. Um, like when I pitched, when we pitched Secret Engineer to who would become my editor, she said she has seen, she's been wanting, she had been wanting to do a Brooklyn Bridge book, an Emily Roebling book for years. She lives in Brooklyn. She works in Manhattan. She goes across the Brooklyn Bridge every day. Um, and she said she'd seen manuscripts come across her desk before to this effect um, and wasn't particularly inspired by any of them but mine was the closest and we still worked on it a lot before she accepted it I still made a lot of edits based on her expertise which did make the project so much stronger but I think we both connected on how this story was important to us um, and I do feel like that gave me an edge so I think if you pick a story or a collection of facts or a subject matter that you're really passionate about, editors will will pick up on that and it will give you an edge. What did that back and forth look like between you and your editor and maybe that early vision of the book that you had and how that changed from idea to fully published? Um, I think... It was a real meeting of the minds in a way that I haven't had in a lot of professional relationships. Like I really admire my editor. I think she's so smart and like really knows how to frame a story in a way that I definitely am newer to. Like that is her realm of expertise. Um and she really understands like the cadence and and the rhythm that a picture book should have. And I, you know, at the time, it was the second book I'd ever written. I didn't, you know, even now, it's not like I have 50 years under my belt in this industry. So that kind of lens through which to look at my work, like it did, the story stands on its own as being a fascinating story. Absolutely. And that's the truth of most most nonfiction stories. It's like the reason you want to tell it is because the story is fantastic. But how do you tell it in 32 pages and 800 words? Like it's, mm. it, you have to, every line has to be perfect and has to make sense. You can't waste a spread. You can't waste a line. So what makes your angle on this story interesting and, and will it be interesting to kids is a big challenge. So I think talking with her about that and, and us both being really passionate about the story, it was less like, um, an audition and more of a, how are we going to do this? And there was a sense of collaboration there, which I, it's, so valuable to me what was it specifically about illustrating and writing children's books that appeals to your taste first because the art is so integral to the story uh, I think in a way that not to say that I would never write for an older audience where there was less art 
I might. I can't say I won't, but it's not part of my goals at the moment. But I think thinking in a visual way has always been important to me. And I think that kids internalize that in a way that adults maybe don't. And the books that you read when you're little kind of become part of your identity in a way that I don't think necessarily hmm, books after you've come of age do. I think I definitely feel attached to some middle grade books in a way that, you know, feels still very integral to who I am. But I think that starts at a very young age. And you ever see a picture book? Maybe not. Maybe this is just me. But did you ever see a picture book where you just want to live in it? You're like, this is so beautiful. I just wish I could fall into this book and live here for a few days. Um, I think that's something really special. So I've always wanted to wanted to try and achieve that myself. Yeah, like I I kind of feel that way with um a lot of uh what's it John Clausen's or Clausen, I think. Mm-hmm. Like his his books uh and even good old uh, Ferdinand. Oh yeah. You know, just the bull out in the field is sitting under a tree and everything. Like I've even told one of my friends I'm like when I we used to work together at a bookstore, and I just would I would read the Fer, Ferdinand every now and again, and I would just be like, man, I just wanna I just wanna sit under a tree and just live out my days just by myself, staring out into the field, maybe scribbling in a notebook, and and that's it, that's all I want. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, and there's so many flashier and and shinier things in the world now, certainly films and cartoons and and. TV, it's like every website even is, 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 a there's animations or videos on it now. It's very different than the slow paced, you know, you look at a book kind of world that maybe even I grew up in. But, um, I think there's still something really special, like picture books aren't going anywhere because there's something really special between a parent and a kid or a teacher and a kid reading a picture book together and how that visual experience has an effect on kids. With your work earlier, you were talking about that you might have, uh, you know, have a a certain degree of maybe uh, an issue of confidence. And this is something I can definitely uh, relate to. I'm someone who struggles immensely with uh, with confidence to the fact that uh, to the point where I have little to none, and I I wonder how you mitigate that in your in your work and how you um, you know maybe you know deal with or pump up your own self worth and confidence so you can approach the work with uh, you know with, with the skill that you've accrued over the years. For me, um, the biggest confidence boost is proof that I can do it. It's less, um, I think this has gotten increasingly harder in a time of social media, and I'd be interested to hear how you feel about that, but I really, really don't like it. I don't like social media. I've been trying very hard to do it um, because it's where people find you now. But um, it feels very unfair to me that a lot of the illustrators that I grew up admiring never had to deal with this. (laughs) It feels very unfair. (laughs) Um, but, you know, everyone on social media seems like they're just making art all the time. They're just live, loving their life and, you know, things just flow out of them because that's the appearance you put for, forward. And I forget who said this to me, but somebody said, 
um, when you're looking at someone's Instagram, remember that you're looking at their highlights reel, not at their every minute of the day. And it's been helpful to remember that. But um, I think something that I do while I'm working, um, especially on a book project, is that um, I hang clotheslines up in my studio on the wall. And as I finish the pieces, I hang them up. So at the beginning of a project, if I'm feeling particularly low confidence, I hang up work from other projects just so that I can see, like, you can do this. You've done all these paintings before. And then, you know, as the project continues, you know, as the paintings stack up on the wall, I feel like the light at the end of the tunnel is clear and clear. And don't worry. Like, we've done this before. We've done all these paintings and they all look the way that you want them to look. So you're not going to mess this up. And I think at the beginning of a book project, it's the same. Um, the writing thing is newer to me, and I don't feel as confident about it, but I lean on the art because I work in such a visual medium. So I feel like if I can draw this and I can imagine it, I can write it too. I've heard uh, Mel Robbins, who's a, you know, kind of a, I, I don't know, thought leader, motivational speaker, I don't, I don't know. Um, I've, I've heard her speak that confidence comes from competency. So it's like through doing the work, like through you hanging up these these pictures, these completed works that you've done on a clothesline so you can actually see what you've done, that that breeds its own sense of confidence, seeing your skill manifested in something material. So that's like kind of what she what she says. And you've like concretely put it like being able to see that is like, oh, yes, I am capable of this and and worth it and can still do this down the road for projects yet on like projects unknown right like sure i i think it's all great you know i think some people are easily you know their fears are easily quelled by someone telling them they can do it sure like you can do it okay i can do it that sounds nice (laughs) but for me the only person who can prove that i can do it is me so (laughs) if i can prove to myself you've done it before you can do it again it feels a lot more concrete and in uh, alluding to the social media and sometimes the toxic nature of it, I, I do have my own sort of struggle, uh, struggling relationship and fraught relationship with it. Um, but it, it it is a it can be a you know toxic's a, toxic's a good word uh, in in that it can really f- stoke the f- flames of um, competition and jealousy. I think, especially, you know, when you yeah. are comparing their highlight reel to your 15 cups of moldy coffee around your around your bliss station. Um, so, like, how do you um, approach, let's say, you know, competition and maybe jealousy among peers if you find yourself looking over your shoulder, if that's something you've ever, you know, wrestled with? Yeah, I think it's tough. I mean, I would say it comes in, in phases. Like, sometimes... Sometimes if you're in a dark way and it does feel like, oh, you're getting our rejections or, you know, your projects are not taking off the ground and you see people who you feel like, you know, for whatever reason, you're like, why are they getting to do this and I don't get to do this? Or like you go to the store and you see a bunch of books that you just feel like are crap and you're like, well, how are all these crap books getting published mm-hmm. and I can't do it? You know, that's a particularly low moment and social media doesn't particularly help me. I don't really, I don't know what it's like to be on social media and find it rewarding. 
Um, I feel like I, I only do it because I have to, I feel, um, occasionally people will, you know, leave comments on social media, my social media and say something nice and that's lovely, but it doesn't feel very real. You know, I, I just, I don't really, I, I appreciate it, but I, I don't know. It, it doesn't feel like when someone says to you in real life, like if they see your work at a at a bookstore, if they see your work at an art show and they say like, oh, I really love this piece. It feels so much more real to me than like just a, you know, a message full of emojis. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, that's it's such a I mean, what a what a minefield that is to have to deal with. And I it's, it's amazing. Like you have said almost word for word words that I have myself uh, uh, said with, you know, why, you know, you, you look over your shoulder and you're like, how, how are they getting that work? I know I'm capable of that. Like, why am I getting rejected? And it seems like they're just getting, they're getting everything. And like, and it gets really frustrating. And, and when you start wallowing in that, then of course, yeah, social you know, media not... is not the answer. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah, exactly. It's how do you pull your you know, pull yourself out of that darkness and then re-channel that energy into into the work, into doing good work? Uh, I think, honestly, it all comes back to what energizes you and your work. I, I mean, I think the, like, echo chamber of social media is a problem for me. Um, I think a lot of people, maybe not, maybe that's an energizer for them, but for me, it's a real de-energizer. I think for me... I, I want to go to my studio and look at the work that I've done and look at my bookshelf and look at the work that inspires me um, and see, you know, how can I, like, oh, like I open up a Barbara Cooney book and I'm like, these illustrations are so beautiful. Like, how can I apply that kind of beauty to my work? Like, or, or I read a book, you know, and I think this is so, the structure of this is so smart. It was so beautifully done and executed in an elegant way. Like, how can I bring that elegance to my manuscript? Um, like, I think that's what energizes me. And it's not something that I see scrolling through on my screen. It's something that I, I open in a physical book on my bookshelf and it feels valuable. So maybe I'm, you know, old school or a, kind of a Luddite or whatever, but I think my inspiration never comes from social media. So I don't look there when I'm feeling down. Yeah, that's such a wonderful, wonderful way of looking at it. Like, I'm looking at my bookshelf right now, and the way I see my books, I see them in a lot of ways that a, that a, you know, someone who collects records or something. And, you know, they just look and be like, you know what, I feel like pulling this album down and putting this on, on, the, on the turntable and just feeling that kind of inspiration. I'm just looking at the book that made me want to get into narrative journalism I'm looking at right now, John McPhee's The Survival of the Bark Canoe. And every now and again, I'll just pull that down, and I won't read the whole thing or even a whole chapter, but I'll just read a page or two. And that's like listening to one of my favorite songs or something. Right. And it's just like, oh, this is how it's done. And you can do it, too, if you just put your nose to the grindstone and, and work at it. And I think a lot of people, you know, they keep books in their house because they've read them, and they throw them out every five or six years when they, you know, need to make room for new books. But, like, I think it, it's a valuable thing to go to your bookshelf and remember why you kept that book. Like, why is this in your collection? Because that's really what it is. It's a collection. It's not just, you know, your pantry is full of spaghetti. It's you kept this book because it meant mm -hmm. something to you. Um, sometimes 
I mean, I, we have many bookshelves in my house and most of them are filled with, you know, books for adults or books that we read together. Um, but the bookshelves in my studio are just filled with picture books and they're just filled with the books that on some level inspired me. So when I'm lacking in inspiration, that's where I go. I'd love to hear what some of those books are for you. Some of the, your, your favorite books on illustration that remind you how it's done, that give, that put fuel in your tank. Um, so that's one part of the question. But the other thing is, like, maybe what are some other artistic media that you consume to also fill up your tank? And that could be movies, documentary, film. Uh, I know you don't read novels, but, like, something something else, maybe a good a, a good podcast that, that does put fuel in Rachel's tank so you can approach your work with, uh, with the energy that it deserves. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, illustration, like, words or illustration, but like just the illustration, um, all time favorite is Barbara Cooney. I have a, I have a tattoo of a Barbara Cooney piece on my leg. Um, she's easily my favorite illustrator. Um, I go to her books a lot when I'm feeling like my paintings just don't look right. Um, I would, I also, I'm a big fan of the illustrations of, um, Miroslav Sasek. Uh, he's a mid-century illustrator who did a lot of really interesting line work. Um, but like not just illustration, like I'm a big, um, I'm a big fan of Baroque painting. I feel like sometimes when I'm lacking in illustration, I look uh, illustration inspiration. I'm looking at, you know, Jericho and and Titian and all of these like old school European paintings, which are very narrative. Um, I think they tell a story in a way that illustration needs to. I like um, J.C. Leyendecker. I like um, classic illustration, the like golden age of illustration as well. Um, that kind of N.C. Wyeth stuff, just really powerful and dynamic composition. Um, when I'm looking for writing, illustri- uh, writing inspiration, I think I come to, you know, a lot of the writers who write in my genre, who are making true stories interesting or lyrical for kids. Um, Jennifer Byrne, certainly, um, let's see, Nancy Chernin, Nancy Carpenter, or I guess she's an illustrator. Um, but yeah, lots of, lots of books. I'm a really big fan of, um, oh, Gloria Whelan is the name I'm looking for. She did a book called, um, Queen Victoria's Bathing Machine, which I, I come to a lot. It's written in rhyme, which I have never wanted to write in, but like, I love how she tells the story that's just kind of silly about like Queen Queen Victoria wanting to go to the beach um but didn't want to like look unqueenly so there's basically a wagon that would deliver her from the beach to the water um that is they call the bathing machine that Prince Albert made for her it was like really quite a funny story it's like lovingly told it makes Queen Victoria into a character for kids it's hilarious I think for me these are the authors that I come to. Um, when I'm looking for facts, I do listen to a lot of podcasts. I really like 99% Invisible. I really like Radiolab. Um, uh, the British History Podcast. Interesting. I think a lot of stuff like that. Um, informational podcasts I come back to a lot. Um, but yeah, I also just sort of walk through the library a lot, the nonfiction section of the library. I'm a real, my library has a section on business and industry history, which I love. I love um, what they call micro histories, um, histories about something that's like positive, like sort of inconsequential. I love all of Mark Kurlansky's books. Um, so yeah, 
I think that's a quite a huge primordial soup of which my work comes out of, but I think that's probably what I would cite. I love that because uh, you know, artists are made of artists and like books are made of books and similarly paintings are made of paintings. It's, it, we distill so many of the things and digest all our influences to come out to a, what we hope is our singular voice. So I, I love seeing how we as g- like garbage disposals, we just throw it all in and flip the switch and it grinds out and it spits out something gross. But that grossness is uniquely us. Definitely. And I, I love hearing what that, what that looks like for an artist. I think you can see it too. Like once you ask someone, like it's not just like, what kind of art they like or what kind of books they like. If they write creative nonfiction, you don't ask them just like, what are the other creative nonfiction authors you like? Like, I feel like you can kind of tell that people like musicals if they paint a certain way, or you can tell that they do yoga if they paint a certain way, like that kind of mm-hmm. thing. I think it like everything that you do comes out in your work, kind of like, you know, if you make wine in a certain place, like, it's not just the grapes it's like the dirt that it grows in and like whether there's also like cinnamon in the air and that kind of thing i know uh, i've heard ira glass talk about um his love of he grew up you know going to musicals and the structure of those plays and those musicals deeply deeply informed how he structures this american life yeah that makes just sense. in terms of yeah so you yeah, it's it, these outside influences that are sort of not really directly related to the work you do, but you can really pirate and steal little little tips from from that. Like you can, you know, the way I like watching like chef documentaries and stuff, and I'm always thinking of that degree of creativity. I'm like, how can I apply the way a chef is uh, making a certain recipe or approaching their kitchen, the way they organize and clean and and then, of course, their knife skills. Like, how can, how can I improve my knife skills as as a writer or in a podcaster? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think... And there's exercises. Like, I think, you know, that part in Top Chef where they do, you know, the, the like, mise en place ra- uh, relay race where they're like, oh, we have to chop these 15 onions and break down these three chickens and then, like, that kind of thing. I'm mm-hmm. sure there's exercises that, like, for writers are like, if you do just sentence, 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 breakdown, that's sort of your mise en place challenge, I think. Well, well, Rachel, as, as we're winding down here, I know I asked you for the, the new segment of the show, the recommendation part, which uh, I don't know how long-lived this will be, but it's kind of exciting me at the moment. <laughs> and so we're going we're gonna to surf that wave. So um, I'd, I'd love for you to um, offer your recommendation as we close out this episode of the podcast. A recommendation of absolutely anything. Of absolutely anything. Uh, mm. I will say I recommend for anyone who's not who's painting and not already using it, but Master's Brush Soap. Um, it will cl- save your brushes forever. Um, you can buy it in the tub or in a bar of soap. And I actually once saw it in like a Martha Stewart Living magazine for people who don't paint to just wash their hands with it. <laughs> it smells kind of nice and it keeps your hands nice. Um, but also if you can clean your makeup brushes with it, if you're a lady, or you can clean, um, painting brushes with it for your like house painting, um, it will save all of those things. And it's like a like really long lived product. I think it's been around since like the forties, but I would recommend that. I don't think enough people use it and your brushes die and get, you have to throw them out if you don't wash them. So save money. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's cool. Fantastic. Well, I know you hate social media, but where can people find you online, Rachel? 
Sure. Um, I'm on Twitter at r underscore Doherty, D-O-U-G-H-E-R-T-Y, and on Instagram at Rachel Doherty Books. Also, it's Fantastic. weird that well, my name is pronounced that way, but it, it looks like Doherty, but it is said Doherty if you're from Philly. What's oh, up, Philly? Fantastic. Well, that, I'm, glad, I'm glad you said it, pronounced it that way, because uh, in the introduction of this, when I record that uh, later in the week, <laughs> I, I would have said Doherty. Yeah, so. everybody would have. So it's, it's wrong, right? <laughs> There's not a yeah. C in it. <laughs> Well, let's just keep the good times rolling straight into the outro. What did I tell you? She's great, huh? Great Instagram follow, by the way. Most illustrators are. That's a great way for you to improve your writing, if you ask me. Follow these illustrators and people from other artistic media on Instagram especially. I think it really informs the old writing gig. In any case, thanks to our sponsors in Goucher's MFA Nonfiction, Bay Path University's MFA in Creative Nonfiction, and River Team. If you dig the show, consider leaving a kind rating on Apple Podcasts. They make me feel good. I think they make you feel good, too. It validates the whole enterprise. Also, keep the conversation going on Twitter and Instagram. I ain't kidding. I ain't kidding, CNF is. At CNF Pod, this is a community. Podcast is merely the hub of the wheel. So, in any case, I'm thinking that's it. We're doing this, aren't we? We're still somehow doing this. Okay, get out of here. Go do your work, do your thing, and if you can do, interview. See ya!